Hi, it's Erin. I'm your regular co-host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out as a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals, and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. Hey, Erin, have you heard that we have a promotional code for SpeechTherapyPD.com? I think I heard the same thing. Yes. So <laughs> as if we both hadn't heard that. <laughs> but um, it's first bite. So if you log on to speechtherapypd.com and enter the promotional code first bite, it takes $10 off an annual subscription. And Aaron, do that you want to? includes all the pod courses. Yes. And we have four now. I'm not sure if y'all knew that. We have four. We have first we have bite. Yeah, we do. It's speech uncensored. Um, and in case y'all haven't heard of this lovely lady, she focuses on adults. And I know that there's a fair few of you out there that PRN impedes and or PRN in adults. So be sure to check out Speech Uncensored. And it also includes the speech link and the SLP Now podcast with Miss Marisha, who I like fangirl crush. She's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay. All right. So promo code is first bite. Whoop. Whoop. And don't let it autocorrect you to B-Y-T-E because it does it did that to me a couple times. So Woo-hoo. there it is. Woohoo! <laughs> Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite. Fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention, right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Cola Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CF, SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So today's topic and guest are both in a field that I am really passionate about, definitely making this episode fed, fun, and functional. And I am humbled to introduce Dr. Rob Dempster, a pediatric psychologist whose research and practice focuses on working with children who have feeding challenges. 
Okay, so by now, most of y'all know that I'm a bit of a clean, dirty hippie at heart, and I passionately feel that we need to treat the whole child in a holistic fashion. And that's why I feel that engaging in interprofessional practice with a psychologist on a feeding team is often the missing link for some of the kiddos that I work with. I say often and not always on the grounds that, well, I don't have easy access to that many psychologists in my immediate area that work with pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. So hint, 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 if you are one of them and you are listening, then come to the Palmetto State. Um, We do have that infamous uh, Palmetto bug. And if you haven't heard of it, it's like a four or five inch um, flying cockroach, (laughs) but like it's a thing. And occasionally we have hurricanes, but we also have carriage rides in Charleston. And apparently, uh, Rob, you probably know this, I'm assuming because you're a dude, but um, we have two really good football teams, like a Clemson Tiger and the Gamecocks, which um, I had not heard of the Gamecocks until we moved to Columbia. And all these girls were walking around with I'm a cock on their bums. And I was like, did their parents know that? And my husband was like, that's, that's, their, that's their motto or their animal. Mascot. That's the word. Mascot. Clearly, I didn't play football. <laughs> So, yeah, and make a good pitch for South Carolina. All right, <laughs> squirrel number one. Um, I, I'm, I like how my ADD is kicking in, and I'm on the phone with the psychologist who's probably like, mm, maybe she should do more than running for the ADD. <laughs> Already got you pegged. <laughs> yep, it happens. <laughs> so I met Rob via a sweet colleague, and we had a laughter-filled phone call. And he helped me, guide me with a patient that I felt had plateaued. And I do not like plateaus. And I needed my cup filled up so that I could turn around and help that little one get over the hump. And I'm happy to report that that little guy who I actually saw this morning has advanced his current diet and currently enjoying chunks. He's licking, he's biting and swallowing, which is like the huge awesome part. And he's using his emotion words. And he's moving forward with joy. So, Rob, yay, thank you. And um, I can personally attest that uh, he gave me evidence-based advice. And that's advice that's desperately needed in the current state of our world where, unfortunately, pseudoscience or fake science is becoming the new norm. So that's an introduction. Um, Rob, how's it going? (laughs) Doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you could come. Y'all, this was a comedy of errors to make our stars align, but we made it. So yay. <laughs> yes. And excited that that little one's doing well. Uh, I am too. His his grandma um, flew in from basically across the country and uh, got to see him and she was crying. She's like, this is so exciting. I was like, I know. And now I'm crying and it was, it was good. Good times. Great. Okay. So you're a psychologist on a feeding team and mm-hmm. you lecture on this, which is really exciting. And um, I know that kind of blows some people's mind that a psych has anything to do with pediatric feeding and swallowing, especially when mm-hmm. in certain pockets of rural America, um, if you just starve the kid, they're going to eat and they'll figure it out, right? Of course. Yes, of course. absolutely. We hear it all the time. <laughs> Even in urban parts. Ah, you'd think in the urban parts it would not be as bad as it is in the rural, but Mm -hmm. um, that's terrifying. Um, So uh, what exactly, dear sir, is uh, the role of a psychologist in treating patients with pediatric feeding disorders? Yeah. Well, thank you again for, for having me. And I just want to emphasize when, when talking about what we do as psychologists, that it's really important that we're part of a team. So 
Um, yes. You know, I hope kind of through the through through today, we'll see. It's not just feeding therapists, psychologists, medical doctors, but it's really kind of what our role is within that coordinated treatment care team for anybody. Um, so really what we're looking at is the behaviors a child is exhibiting at mealtimes and trying to figure out within their skill level, within what can be expected medically, um, within what they, their body can tolerate, um, what is kind of a fair way to uh, nudge their expectations. Um, and so we're really looking at what's going on before a meal begins that we can help set that up and what's going on um, after a meal is over, what kind of consequences happen and trying to figure out where we can um, change those things and, and help set them up for, for success. So, um, but I think um, a lot of times the way people think about psychologists is, okay, we're, we're taking them to the limits, um, you know, right off the bat. And really what we're trying to do is figure out how can we, how can we meet them where they're at and make those slow systematic changes to just help get them just to that next step um, one thing at a time. So a lot of times that might be using rewards and things like that. But um, usually in the beginning, we're just trying to figure out are there small tweaks that the family might not have done yet, like cutting out grazing, um, offering them food instead of pressuring for food and things like that? So, um, you know, really one of our first steps as a psychologist is just seeing kind of what, what families are doing currently and are there some simple things that we can put in place for them so they might not even need behavioral therapy. Okay. How in the world did you land in this branch of psychology? Like, is this like an actual <laughs> option? Like, I'm just thinking like coming through grad school, <clears throat> you were either yeah. if, as a speech path, we are lumped into yep. medical or schools and never should yep. the two cross. And then you get mm -hmm. out in the world and you're like, well, a good thing I took the medical classes, even though they were designed for adults, because I'm seeing mm -hmm. tiny humans that have, you know, the diabetes. We call it, we call it the sugars. Oh. I don't, do y'all call it the sugars? <laughs> up oh here? yeah. yeah. The, often the bad sugars. <laughs> the bad or, sugars. Or the sugars, you know, either, either way, depending. <laughs> yeah, I, I had to correct a student one time. She at, she was at very, very formal, very uncomfortable. She was like, does the baby have diabetes? And the mama looked at me like that kid had three heads. I said, honey, you better got the sugars. And she goes, oh, that baby got the sugars, man. Yep. And I'm like, all right, translation. There you go, code switch, mama. But like, so this was, I mean, pediatric feeding and swallowing was not covered in my grad program. So like, where did you figure this out? Yeah. No. So um, I actually um, attended a clinical psychology graduate program at Kent State University. Um, so it was focused on child and family psychology generally, and then got into that niche of pediatric psychology. And a lot of people don't know this. Pediatric psychology means it's a psychologist who works with kids and families that also have health conditions. I so had no idea it's not somebody... Yeah. And most people don't. So it's not somebody with just straight depression or straight anxiety, but it's anxiety that's contributing to headaches or um, having difficulty with um, maintaining my diabetes uh, medication adhering to that. So I'm a pediatric psychologist that specializes in kids with gastrointestinal illnesses and feeding disorders. And so, um, but I started out working with actually general behavior management. So kids who um, would follow instructions, would have long temper tantrums, would be labeled as defiant, um, wouldn't sleep in their own beds and things like that, potty training, and really loved working with those kids because 
that you can just see the treatment work. They go from having 10 temper tantrums a day to two. They go from um, sleeping in their parents' bed 80% of the night to sleeping in their own bed all night. You can see those kind of clear-cut outcomes. Um, and and so I did a, kind of a broad ped psych training, so working with all sorts of different cr chronic health conditions on my internship, which is like our residency. And then, um, but I had spent some time working in a interdisciplinary feeding clinic at Akron Children's Hospital um, as one of my practicums. And that consisted of a speech pathologist, an MD, a psychologist, dietitian, and you know, working with that team. And it was my first exposure to that real integrated team-based approach to treatment and um, just seeing how you didn't have to email somebody and wait for a week for to get a response. You didn't have to take a guess to as, as what you think would be the right type of formula or the right type of medicine needed, but you've got everybody in the same room and you can actually figure it out. It combined that, you know, you, clear-cut successes as, as well as that whole team um, mentality. And so um, as, as I kind of went along, I actually, so that was one experience in grad school, went on and I actually did my fellowship in pain, but I still missed those kids with- Wait, pain? Yeah. What do you mean? Pain? Like, like pain is in like, I'm hurt? So pain is in kids with um, chronic headaches, chronic abdominal pain, uh, oh, back pain, God. things like that. Oh my God, I thought you were that. talking about like a city. I'm sorry. <laughs> like when you said in pain, I was like, where is that? Yeah. Like I'm looking up a map. I spent a I'm summer so in pain, Arkansas. Uh, you know, it was, it was hot, but no. So, no, no, you're fine. But, but for, for pediatric pain, it's a different kind of treatment approach and I really enjoyed it, but I also missed those kids where you see kind of the clear cut um, advances, the successes. And I missed working with, um, you know, those kids that have kind of some of those more extreme behaviors and, and seeing that change. And so um, kind of accepted a job that had that as a chunk of it. And then we've been able to build it out from there. Awesome. You like a challenge. Absolutely. Oh, that's, yep. absolutely. That's what we live for. Yeah, that's, that's, I, I give me the least of these and that is my thing. Mm -hmm. I totally get it. If I could handle blood, I would have made a really good ER doc, but blood <laughs> and I'm on the floor. So like, I'm out. Okay. All right. So that's how you got into mm -hmm. the pediatric feeding. Yes. All right. And then, so, so I'm, I'm sorry, just to back up real quick, because you were talking yeah. about trainings and things like that. It's the same thing in the psychology world. There's not really good graduate school programs you can go to for feeding. So a lot of it has been through different practica. I think the same hands-on experience that happens in the therapy world a lot of the time. And then, you know, trainings and, and things like that. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm just thinking in my head, how can we fix that? Because right. I immediately hear a problem and I'm like, what can we do to fix that? Okay. All right. We'll have, that will be a sidebar conversation for later. All right. Now here's what I want to know. When I have seen, here locally at least, if I can find a psychologist to work with me and a family and a kiddo, uh, normally we're not in a position where they actually come to our sessions. Mm -hmm. So it's me working with a kid at the clinic or in their home and then the family taking the child to see a psychologist afterwards. Mm -hmm. And the psychologists that I have worked with previously were at a, we have like a, it's a, for lack of a better phrase, it's an anorexia bulimia clinic. Yeah. And so that was the closest that we could, we could find. Mm -hmm. 
because it's barren Mm -hmm. here. And, but for that child, it worked because of her unique PMH. Mm -hmm. Right. But, um, I would have preferred if there was a way to do it holistically, like you said, all in one room, Mm -hmm. but I've often wondered where does the family component tie in? Because I am not a psychologist, but I can tell you I have walked in and seen families falling apart Mm -hmm. because of the child's feeding and swallowing and or the global special needs component. Absolutely. And so this is this is honestly one of our most common referral questions from therapies. So if we have somebody who's been participating in feeding therapy with OT or speech and they um, their child is able to eat in session, they can participate in exercises, texture grading is going great, you know, whatever it is. But either we bring mom and dad in the room and then it falls apart or they do great in session, but it doesn't translate to home. Um, and I think a part of that is also how billing and, and treatment is kind of set up differently for therapies and psychology. You know, we, we have billing codes where we, we can meet with parents alone, right? And, and focus exclusively on, okay, you're having trouble with dinner time. What time do you get home from soccer practice? Let's really dismantle what your evening looks like and figure out where these dinner times fit in, how exactly you're responding, what you're doing in the session. So, um, you know, I think that's um, that's where one of those tricky parts comes in. But to kind of go back to your original question, the answer is the parent and family component is really from the beginning, from the immediate. Usually um, when I'm working with a child and we're working on maybe it's tasting new foods Um, you know, usually within three sessions, my main focus is having the family feeding and me coaching the aspects of, of what they're doing, how they might be responding, things like that. It's obviously very different depending on the case and severity and and all of those kinds of things. Um, and this is talking about mostly on the outpatient side, but, um, but really, um, diving into the specifics of when your child does this. How are we going to respond? And what's that structure? Um, making sure they they understand and that they uh, believe it. Yeah. I think that's one of the biggest things that we run into is, you know, you say, oh, great. You know, here's, here's the, I can give you the world's perfect behavior plan. But if I give it to mom and I don't understand that dad doesn't even think they should be here. And whenever they go to do something at home, rolls, rolls his eyes and, uh, you know, then does something that totally undermines the plan. Well, unless I really unpack that and can, can work with them on that, the the treatment isn't going to go anywhere. All right. I don't mean to be sexist, but that is a problem that I run into especially in certain locales Mm -hmm. of the area that I work with. And I will say it does go the other way. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it does. But I mean, like, I truthfully have a hard time getting the patriarch of the family Mm -hmm. to buy in. Mm -hmm. And and then I run into the situation where the patriarch of the family may not want to buy in, Mm -hmm. or the matriarch of the family is, um, I can... (laughs) I can hear my my grand my my family would say they're just coddling that baby too much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. like, I mean, those are the words of my youth. <laughs> but yeah. like, 
But I mean, I have I have seen that, okay. and I'm always like, "Ooh, we need to facilitate independence." And I always try to pitch that, like, "Let's facilitate independence mm-hmm. for your tiny human." Mm-hmm. And you you said something that I absolutely love. You said, "I coach them while they work with feeding their kid." Mm-hmm. I very rarely feed a kid. Mm-hmm. That's not my job. Right. My job is to enable the family or the caregiver to have the tools to do the job. I may. Like if I clearly see the kid drowning, go in and reposition mm-hmm. on a bottle, but like, yep. yeah. Absolutely. And from session one, I try to make that clear. And because some people think, okay, I'll, I'll, I'm going to the doctor. The doctor is going to fix it. So I'm going to drop them off and then go from there. And so um, really just making that clear from the beginning, um, you know, the this feeding problem developed because of maybe it's a history of reflux or maybe they had oral motor delays and then tried to eat something that was too challenging and had a gag or something. And, you know, there's good reasons why this feeding problem developed that isn't your fault, but you can be the solution. You, you are the one who can make this change. And so trying to emphasize that we're not working on a a plan for the parents because it's their fault, but because I'm here for one hour a week, you're there seven days a week, three meals and two snacks a day, you know, and, and can really make the change. I'm just thinking, I definitely eat more than five times a day as you say <laughs> that, but like, I'm a grazer. And like, ah, Grazing works for you yeah. fine, right? So it's not, yes. uh, since it's not impacting your life, who cares? But for those yeah, that do. It's exactly <laughs> how I fit my scrubs, but like, that's a different conversation. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. All right. So then I, okay. I, this is just me personally, everybody out there, like you can be totally candid and honest. I know the caliber of therapy I delivered prior to having children. And now I'm like, instead of asking a family to do 15 things Mm -hmm. when I leave, I ask them to do one Mm -hmm. and or carry over the thing from last time. So do you have your own tiny humans? Do you have a mess of siblings? (laughs) Like how did this evolve and impact your treatment plan? Interesting. Um, I have a little uh, one-year-old at home. His name is Holden. And um, yes. Um, you know what I what I will say is it's made me really um, recognize. I think I didn't understand how severe some oral motor delays are. When now that I have my son and he's eating solid food and and seeing the speed at which that was picked up and then seeing how painstaking of a process it is for a lot of our kids, um, that's something that's just really stuck out because we see you know, kind of the most severe of the most severe and uh, taking a step back and seeing, you know, what kind of other development looks like. It's um, particularly thinking about if I was a uh, parent who had multiple kids before, and then all of a sudden I have the severity of these delays and challenges that some of these other kids have, it's definitely given a lot of uh, perspective. I have, um, I have seen where the special needs child is the oldest Mm -hmm. and has so many severe delays. And we do have, there's a phenomenal clinical psychologist. uh, I say across the river as if like you live here and you know exactly (laughs) where I'm gesturing. Um, But like across the river, there's this phenomenal one that a lot of the local mothers go to. Mm -hmm. um, And um, she's really big in our local CP community. And, uh, 
one of the moms, when she had her second, you know, and I'm in treating the oldest mm-hmm. and I'm kind of like watching and she goes, Michelle, now Miss Michelle, what do you think about this baby? Cause he's getting a little thick. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, because she's now anxious about her typically developing right. younger child. Absolutely. And I'm like, I cannot answer this as a speech pathologist, mm-hmm. but as a mama, oh my gosh, look at them little jelly rolls. But like, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Absolutely. <laughs> but, but it's, it's the, it, it can, that can be the reverse mm-hmm. for them. And then, you know, so yeah. I think just, so, so, um, you know, we have a very large NICU in the area and the having a lot of um, kids that come out of there. We also have, you know, lots of families who will come out and they've had to calculate every food down to the gram, every sip down to the ML, you know, just every little thing to keep their little one alive. And then same thing happens when maybe their second or third child is born is, oh, I might have, but there sometimes there's that same kind of note taking or note keeping or, you know, whatever has to come and working through those, figuring out how to um, parent without having to do all of those things and, and learning it'll be okay. It's, it's tough. There's a really good special needs planner. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. If you give me two seconds to pull it up, that I have um, one of my special needs mommies found, and it took into account feeding documentation as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was also inspirational in the delivery of it. Um, I am scrolling. I will find it. Okay. All right. While I'm researching that, then let's dive into the next question. What are some of the basic strategies that could be incorporated into practice for other disciplines that come from your discipline? So for those of us that are listening, what can we do to make our world and service delivery better? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and I think a lot of people think, whoa, using behavioral strategies might be out of scope of practice and those kind of things. And I think there are severe behaviors and assessments and things like that that are definitely need to be conducted by a psychologist. And we can talk about some of those things. But, you know, every time somebody takes a bite and we start clapping and cheering, that's a behavioral strategy. Right. So, so we are taking, they did something, we're adding a positive consequence and we're hoping that that increases what they'll do again. So people are already doing behavioral strategies in session. I, I, for my little guy that eats all the chunks, I sing who let the dogs out. That's his positive behavioral reinforcement. There you go. But yay, there it is. It's, it's finding what's important to him. And if the, if the Baja men are what, you know, get him eating, then that's the way it needs to be. <laughs> but, oh God, help me! <laughs> well, I continue. So, I'm sorry. so one of the um, the the main ways to kind of shift that attention is just something that we call selective attention. So, really, what I've, I've done a lot of co treatment and therapies over the years, and um, you know what I see is it's not the uh, turning on the cheering that's usually lacking, but um, sometimes it helps if we do shut that off when they are not doing what, we, what we're asking them to do. And so this is if um, we're using an approach where a child has been said, okay, let's take our bite, um, or take your bite, and then maybe there's a reward after, or that's, that's just kind of the task of the session. And then um, if they're not doing it, then shutting that off. And that is a hard thing for, that's still a hard thing for me, and I've been doing this for a long time. That's a hard thing for parents. But when we can model that for the family, that, um, that that's something that's okay to do, and the child learns there's a contrast that when I'm doing great, then it's more fun. And if I'm not, it's just boring. Um, 
that can and be not negative and scary. Correct. Yeah. So I think that's a that's a common misconception with psychologists. We literally never use punishments. Um, not psychologists as a whole, but but where I am and. Uh, <laughs> But, but we never use punishments for behavior when it comes to feeding. So um, it's either we are super positive, we are having a great time, or it's going to be boring and you're going to have to wait for 20 minutes and then you can you can go on your way. But um, but a lot of that comes into how things are. And so let's say, for example, like for an older kid, everything is screen time. If you um, do your tastings, then you get to have your screen time. And if you don't, then you don't. And um, you could say that. If you don't do what I'm telling you to do, you're not getting the iPad tonight. That's a punishment, right? Or if we say, hey, buddy, yep. we got to do these tastings, but if you take your bites, then you get to play on the iPad tonight. Same consequence, but that's a reward. And so making sure that we're coaching families in how we are phrasing that and the energy we're putting behind it, the tone of voice, all of those kinds of things, um, that is that just plays such a such a big factor in that. Um, I do think. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was I was just thinking. I have had families that are afraid to go to a psychologist because they think that y'all will drug their kid. My baby don't need no drugs. My baby doesn't need that pill. And I'm like, that's. And then I immediately feel like it's a breakdown of my delivery of my message. But I also have to understand that can also isn't the word transference like that's their personal fear being placed on the. And, child, and right? so I think like, one thing to emphasize them too is psychologists don't do meds. That's psychiatry, right? Correct. A psychologist okay. cannot give you a pill, at least in most states. So the <laughs> and and it's very limited in the ones that do allow it. But really, people go into psychology because they want to do hands-on therapy. Um, psychiatrists are the people that prescribe medicines, and then also sometimes do feeding therapy. Well, not feeding therapy. Sometimes do therapy. Okay. Okay. Uh, um. <laughs> Just thinking, I'm so proud of myself that I knew a psychiatrist is the one that did meds, but yeah. I didn't know that pain wasn't a city. So, like, go team. <laughs> like, uh, one for two. Yeah, I'm so close. Michelle, so close. Okay. All right. So, what? Um, at what point in time do you have to do those strategies with the parents? Yeah. So, I think. It uh, again, a big part of it is making sure that the family buys into buys into treatment. And so, you know, when you were talking about kind of that patriarchal um, system, you know, where it might be that the, the uh, father is stepping in or not going forward or whatever it is, you know, before we're even jumping in with any certain kind of strategies, we really need to make sure what is the family willing to do. Um, can I give an example that's not feeding related? Yes, please. Okay. Absolutely. So for, as a psychologist, eating, uh, potty training, and sleeping really go together. Because right, Wait, go back to the sleeping one because I can tell you my own personal four-year-old, I finally got him a weighted blanket to get him out of my bed. So okay. like, yeah, so I'm going to use sleep training as an example then because it really relates. So, the, so they're very similar because they're all things you can't force a child to do. You can't force mm -hmm. them to eat. You can't force them to actually go on the potty. You can't force them to sleep. And also the same behaviors that come up are, are similar across them. Um, getting upset, having tantrums, crying, meltdowns, getting very emotional, those kinds of things. And so um, the treatments that work with one also 
tend to work with another. So I'd say actually over half of kids that I see, if I'm seeing them for one of the three, I'm probably seeing them for at least two of the three. Mm -hmm. And so um, in sleep training, if a family tries to, the, the by far the most evidence-based and effective method is have a good bedtime routine, um, you know, do, do the same thing every night, going to bed around the same time, eliminating screens, and then closing the door, saying good night, and not coming back until the morning. Now that's okay, so all. What is what is what is the same time every night? Just curious. Does is a thirty minute window or like a twenty minute window oh, still yeah. pretty good? Okay, cool. I mean, there, <laughs> there's no exact. You know, there's no randomized study where they have like thirty minute variability versus an hour or anything like that. But really, as long as you're in the ballpark, what hurts is if you're doing you're going to bed at ten o'clock one night and then one a.m. the next night and then seven o'clock this night and yeah, you know no, your I body's rhythm is But yep. like, okay, it happens. Right. Yeah. So, um, so, but when we're doing sleep training, you know, as a psychologist, what we're helping the family with is look, we're making sure they're safe. We're getting them in their bed and then we're not going to respond if they are, um, you know, crying or getting out of bed or anything like that. And that's a very tough thing to do. I had to do it this year. Right. <laughs> but, um, <Poor> Holden. <laughs> but he's doing, he's doing just fine. <laughs> um, so, but, uh, but when you do that, if you, uh, if a family isn't willing to stay with it for the whole night, I tell them not even to start because if you, let's say you stick with it, you put them to bed at 10 and then you, um, try for, but after two hours of, uh, crying and yelling, it's, it's just too much. I'm going to go in and get them at that point. Then the next time it comes around and they're alone in their room at night and they're uncomfortable and wanting their parents, they might think, okay, well, I have to cry for two hours, but then I know mom and dad will come back. So then what we see is gradually uh, getting upset for longer and longer periods of time. And so it's something where unless they're willing to stick by it, we don't want to even start. And so, or we need to find what they can stick to and then start there. So and that's the same approach for the feeding component. Exactly. So, you know, let's exactly. say it's, um, let, let's say, let's say we're using screens as a, as a reward in the evening, but you know what? I'm a single parent and I have to do dishes. I have to make food. How am I going to keep them entertained if there's absolutely nothing going on? Well, maybe we say it's, you don't have your screens for this hour of the night because that's something we know that we can consistently follow through with. But then we know later in the evening, we, we need that to help with getting things done. And so that way you're not setting yourself up for failure. Whereas if that same parent said, you only get your screens for the whole night if you do your, your tasting, well, now they're stuck and they're either going to have to give in because they, they need to get by with the evening or they're making their, their life a lot more difficult. So, you know, when we're starting out early with um, these kinds of things, we're really meeting with the family each step of the the plan and working with them and figuring out what is what's tolerable to you, what can you follow through with, um, and what do you think the people at home would be willing to do? Because a lot of times, if you have that person who might not believe it mu as much, we can figure out well, what is it that you think they won't? They'll at least be okay if you do it at this time. Mm -hmm. You know, so maybe it's when we're working on new food. Um, well. When, um, when mom gets home from work, she's really stressed and needs some while to unwind. So if we're trying new food at dinner, that's going to be too much. But we can do it at a snack earlier so that it's not at that same time. 
and then you know figuring out what works in their specific life with with their specific family. I have found that Sunday afternoon snacks tend mm-hmm. to be a great time for a family to introduce a new food. And I don't know. Yeah. And I, I don't, I don't have, have, talk about not using pseudoscience. This one is just sheer dumb luck, but (laughs) it's something about the, the Monday through Friday grind is really Mm -hmm. stressful. Mm -hmm. And, um, Saturday, everybody just wants to unwind, but Sunday Mm -hmm. it's something about like, you're getting ready to start the week. It's mm-hmm. like, it's, it's a fresh start kind of thing. Interesting. So, and and yeah. normally I have found a lot of the patriarchal men are, they're more relaxed on Sundays. So especially with, I mean, where we live, a lot of people work, you know, shift work and have long hours and do end up having to work one of the weekends. Um, so something about Sunday afternoon snack. I like it. I'll have to, I'll have to look out for that. I'd say, <laughs> yeah. For, for us, the most common one tends to be right after school when we're mm-hmm. working on kind of that new stuff because a lot of times uh, kids They're are starving. hungry because it's been a while yeah. and it's not the stress of everybody at the at the dinner table together or what if somebody's going to push too hard and that kind of thing. And so, you know, we still might use like the Ellen Satter method, method at dinner, but work on tastings at, you know, right after school snack or something like that. That's awesome. Okay. Huh. I'm thinking about how to start doing that one. Um, the I can tell you the old strategy that my daddy used was pick a hole it's going in. It's probably not going to fly. Probably. I, I do remember one of my brothers who actually is in the Air Force and it has served him well said my ear. And all it took was my dad to stand up oh. at the dinner table and all <laughs> it ate his entire plate. Like probably a great <laughs> bite. <laughs> well, it really depends on the food in that situation. Yeah. You know? no. <laughs> there was, he was my um, – he was my brother that learned well with um, corporal punishment. So mm-hmm. the, the family motto was, if he wasn't going to follow directions, my dad would say, go out back in three holes. Okay. And he had a post hole digger yep. on the back fence. He would dig three holes down and then have to refill them. And that was, yeah, old rednecks. Oh, my gosh. Um, wow. But, you know, that worked. <laughs> He's a yep. good man. <laughs> and you know what? Those, those, those are the kind of tips that our kids get all the time yes. from their pediatricians uh-huh. or from other places. And with good intentions because I, for most kids, if you say, serve them what you're eating, eventually they'll have some, you know, those kinds of things, that works great. Don't make them a special dinner, you know, all those kinds of things. But then we see – those Not kids where they'll go, they'll go on three day hunger strike and they don't have a sensitive appetites and, and they'll be just fine with it. And, um, you know, that's, that's kind of the difference. So yeah, those things work great for, Hey, maybe 60% of the population, but then what do you, <laughs> what are you going to do about the rest? Yeah, there was, um, there was a really good, and I'm trying to remember where the article came from. I have it y'all. If you want the research article message me, um, because you can message me on First Bite Instagram or First Bite Facebook page or whichever, which way. But there was a really good article that said um, it was 89 to 93% of children with special needs will have some sort of feeding or oral pharyngeal dysphagia. And I wholeheartedly think that even the kiddos that we label as quote-unquote feeding, I really think that that's – a misnomer. I don't think it's an R63, like feeding aversion difficulty. Most of those children truthfully have an oral pharyngeal dysphagia that just hasn't been diagnosed yet, or they even have an esophageal concern. Um, 
Have, do you guys get much stuff on esophageal dysphagia or um, because that's just starting to enter the world of speech pathology? Absolutely. I mean, I think, and so that's why having the team approach is so vital because I don't know how to diagnose that or, or look into that or anything, but I have, you know, the, the team around me to really look at all of these different aspects and, um, and make sure we're taking that into account. So a lot of times, um, while we're figuring that out, maybe we're waiting on a, I, this isn't for the esophageal one, but you know, we often run into gastric motility and wondering, you know, if they have delayed gastric emptying and things like that. And so while we are waiting to figure out kind of, uh, you know, how much we can give a child, you know, reliably, what well, we still might be working on behaviors like you can still take an empty spoon, even if you have delayed motility. <laughs> and we, we can still work on small, small amounts of things to work on the, the quality of those bites and drinks um, while, we're, while we're kind of getting that, that medical part figured out. Yep. Nope. That is, I 100% agree with everything you just said. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. All right. So I'm, I'm looking at our clock and I'm thinking mm-hmm. the next round of questions is probably going to take up like most of our 25 minutes. <laughs> time. So, um, all right. So how can you get gains made in the treatment session? This is where I, I struggle personally. I know the little mm-hmm. one that I called you about, um, he was rocking it with me. And I would mm-hmm. walk out the door and it would stop, right? So how do we get mm-hmm. the, the gains that have been made in a treatment session to translate better into the home, especially mm-hmm. if folks are treating at a clinic or when the clinician leaves their house? Because mm-hmm. that's that's one of the things that I struggle with and why I refer and try to get you know psychology involved. But help. Absolutely. Help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, like I said, this is one of our most common uh, referral areas. So I feel really, really passionately about this part of getting it to generalize and translate to the home situation. You know, um, there, so there's a, there's a lot of different things we can do. One is that practicing in session that we were talking about and seeing if we can coach them there. But sometimes with their friendly psychologist or therapist nearby, they're still kind of putting on a show in session that's different than what happens at home. Um, one, one thing that we often do is, um, ask questions to see if the family really understands why we're doing the specific responses that we're doing. So, um, so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll ask, okay, so if they throw this behavior at you, what would you do in that situation? And then follow up to try to under to see if they understand the why. Cause I'd say that's one of the biggest disconnects that we get when it's not being followed through. Um, if I can use an example, we love timers and we use them for <laughs> everything. Oh my God. Even you saying the word timer makes <laughs> me sit up in my chair. You, let's have fun analyzing that response later. But, <laughs> okay, continue. <laughs> so, so, you know, really from the, from the behavioral end of things, a lot of times what's happened is, um, we're, there needs to be a time where mealtime ends. And a lot of our kids have gotten in a pattern of when they get really upset, that's what makes the mealtime end. And, um, you know, for if for a lot of kids, what we find is, oh, so that reinforces the behavior. I become upset. Then everybody takes away the demands. The scary thing goes away. I feel that whoosh of relief from that kind of fight or flight response. And <laughs> yeah, then, <I> um, <laughs> and, and then, 
Okay, great. And so one of the reasons we use the timer is we're never going to make you eat anything, but what's going to end our time here is that we had 10 minutes where we were going to sit here and work on this. If you, you know, do your snack, then great. We're going to get up early, be done, go play. And if not, we'll just sit here for 10 minutes, but it's not going to be the um, crying protests and, and all of those kinds of things that are what end us participating in our, in our session. Um, and so, but it's one of the, so the, so the reason for the timer is so that you, you know how long to keep trying because a lot of times with families, it's, you know, they've tried doing three hour dinners and we know that that doesn't work. And they, yeah, we, we've had people where they literally overnight are staying in the same chair to try to, you know, drive home. You're, you're going to eat that kind of old school, you know, type you were talking about and, and it just doesn't work. So, okay. So we, we've got this, that it's known that it's time limited. And honestly, for a lot of our kids who get upset, then they know, okay, well, it's just 10 minutes and then I'm done and, and that's going to be okay. Um, but a lot of families will have this great plan, we'll go home, and they won't be using the timer because they thought it was just about the passage of time. So I can just watch a clock, and I know when 10 minutes has passed, so I'll let the meal end. But if there's not that noise that's signaling it, it's not doing the teaching that that noise is what's ending what we're working on. Okay, so talk to me about the actual timer. Are mm-hmm. you, because I inevitably go to the timeout timer that we had mm-hmm. as a t- small child and it was a mm-hmm. rooster and it rotated, right? But like, I feel like you probably are using something with more of a visual, is it the red and white uh, one? Up here, we actually use cow timers instead of rooster timers, <laughs> but it's just a regional difference. I but, mean, you gotta um, be difficult like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, so it, it depends on the on the child. So for a lot of our chi- our kids, we actually just get regular digital timers from the dollar store and use that. Um, there's a free app on iTunes and Android called Kids Countdown. That's a visual timer. I gotta I gotta pull this up. It's called Kids Countdown. Oh, okay. it's either Kids Countdown or Children's Countdown. Um, okay. And you can um, set the timer, and um, then it has um, the color changes from green gradually to red to kind of signal when they when they need to be done by, and it reveals a picture as time goes on and, and that kind of thing. Duck. So, yeah, yeah, and you can change it to a helicopter, all sorts of things. Oh, that is precious. Bless <laughs> it. Okay, I'm I'm downloading it as we speak. All right, cool. <laughs> So, um, so, so we'll use visual timers, or there's also a time timer app that um, that we've also used. But the the most of our kids honestly do do fine with a just traditional digital timer. Or if the family's going to be practicing this at phone at home, I'll have them pull out their phone, find the um, the timer app on their phone, so that they know how to use it, and then have them take that with them to use uh, at home when they're practicing. Um, I like that you use the family's phone because Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll use one of the, when I leave and take the Michelle with me, um, I will get the family to film me doing some of the, uh, lick it, touch it, like the Mm -hmm. SOS approach stuff with the Mm -hmm. kiddo. Mm -hmm. And they, when they play it back at like the start of like their, you know, advanced PO trials, um, time that helps 
like for lack of a better phrase, like prime or prep the little one to get ready. Mm-hmm. Okay. Even though Miss Michelle's not here, Miss Michelle's right here. Cause they've got me mm-hmm. recorded. Um, Absolutely. And that, that, especially my little ones that are on the spectrum, that seems That's, to really help them. And there's research to back that up, yep. that if we can use pictures from the practice or whether it's recording or most of the research that I've seen has actually been done with pictures, but regardless kind of reminding of that specific situation. That's mm-hmm. great. Okay. So Um, with your little ones that have, um, that are on the spectrum, Mm -hmm. do you use visual storytelling in your therapy sessions? Like, because I've had mixed results with that because Mm -hmm. when the books get sticky, because inevitably I'm Mm -hmm. working with something that is sticky and then they don't want to touch it because it's sticky, but like, Mm -hmm. (coughs) do y'all engage with that? Yeah. So this is one where that's not something that we tend to create here. We do a lot of modeling so that they can see exactly what we're we're doing. And we so leave y'all lots are eating of, the food or when you say, mm-hmm. okay, cool. I do that. Yep. I totally do that. And people yep. think I'm weird that I eat whatever the kid's eating. And I'm like, no, they got to know. This is why yeah. I eat eight times a day, but like. Got to learn how to tolerate those purees. Yep. <laughs> but um, so, 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 so we'll model and then demonstrate for them. And really when we have, particularly for those kids with autism, the, um, the research is very clear about the use of uh, specific concrete repeated behavioral strategies um, are, are by far the, the biggest evidence-based and uh, it, but it's, it's that repetition is what we see. So I've had a few kids who come from their home therapist and they have that kind of visual story with, um, with related to feeding. And, you know, I don't know of any specific research for feeding on this part, but what we see is that, that repetition, that consistency, that, um, they know what to expect from the session, that we're not taking them 10 steps down the road. We're, we're starting with a reasonable expectation, but, but sticking with that, um, that repetition, and consistency is what we see uh, more effective than anything. Hmm. I had, and so, it, go ahead. No, I'm just, I was thinking in my head on a case and I'm just pondering where I go next. Keep talking. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, not at all. But I think the, um, the, the thing is really make sure we're meeting the child where they're at. So, you know, let's say, let's use a child on the spectrum, for example, that like you were just talking about, when we're teaching them about, um, you know, our specific rewards that we might be using or the timer and all that stuff, we start out doing that stuff with preferred foods and preferred drinks so that they learn they learn the rules, they learn the system, they build success and, um, and confidence. Mm-hmm. And then it's making those very, very small changes, whether that's doing, you know, one tiny bite of a slightly different flavor of yogurt or a different brand of the same yogurt or something like that, you know, as opposed to jumping straight to a chicken tender for somebody who only does purees or something like that. You tiptoe them in the water. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. So I... I um, an issue that I run into on a regular basis is that my children that are um, predominantly open mouth breathers, um, because you know they get the aero portion of their digestive tract hasn't been addressed. Mm-hmm. I'm like, we're working that issue. So, like, when they get to me, we start like massive medical management, right? And, mm-hmm. and often I see that that has been missed. Um, and normally, what I see is while the child may be 
accepting pureed foods only, the prior clinicians Mm -hmm. had been working on advanced solids that the child did not Mm -hmm. have the prerequisite Mm -hmm. skill space for, Mm -hmm. right? And so they jump this, but they use Mm -hmm. non-evidence-based chewy tubes, Z-vibes in the median Mm -hmm. to pseudoscience, Mm -hmm. wake the face up, but Mm -hmm. the actual innervation pattern and you, um, the way the central pattern generators work, that, that doesn't carry over. Like if you, if if you've taught a kid to chew on a piece of plastic, congratulations, you've taught the kid to chew on a piece of plastic, but that does not teach them how to control the bolus and like, and they're going to bite on my spoon more. Yes. Freaking yes. (laughs) All the yes. Um, Anna Grace, I know you're listening to the people in the back. Say it one more time. If they chew on a piece of plastic, they will chew on the spoon more. Yay. <laughs> Sorry, I feel really strongly about this. I went out of my profession altogether. But that's okay. Now, hold on. Now, I will say though, I so I say that half joking. I have used the and we and with with my colleagues that as a short term intermediary step to work toward food being there, right? Okay. So, like getting used to a quick up and down, and then tra- like more as an anxiety reducer. So, you know, for example, if I have a child where if I bring a bite of food in mesh towards their face, they shut down immediately. Mm -hmm. Well, a first step might be bringing something like that to practice on a couple of times to see, I don't need to be scared when they bring something to my face and then switching out in those kinds of things. And and I get that. And I also get, like, I have worked with little ones that have um, Angelman syndrome, which is pretty rare, but I've had a couple Mm -hmm. on my caseload. And they... Mm -hmm sensory seek aggressively, right? And they're the Mm -hmm. little ones that will bite on all the things if they don't have Mm -hmm. something to bite. And it's not, Mm -hmm. and I will, for those children, absolutely, I'll give them something to chew because if they don't, then they're going to chew me and I like my digits. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, I mean, but like that's, but that could just as be, yeah, I was going to say, it's not serving any purpose. Like for me, it's not serving any purpose other than, we're trying to borrow the OT term of that child regulates that way. I'm not working on it improving mm-hmm. their mastication. It's just mm-hmm. there. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. So I just, I, yeah, there was a point to that, but I got so excited and impassioned that I lost it, but I'm really glad to know that you and yours do not use um, uh, that approach. That brings me so much joy and validation all at once. <laughs> yeah i bet y'all see that as well in your neck of the woods too just saying there are um there are lots of approaches out there and you and you see it all but uh okay now what about the fish and tackle box because i have seen children um let me explain that short statement i have seen that might be a regional (laughs) (laughs) geographical variation um okay so what i have seen is um i've had a couple kiddos that had uh autism spectrum diagnosis and they had um in our local area some larger autism companies working with them and while i knew that the child had an underlying or a pharyngeal dysphagia, which is why they had their G-tube. And I mean, it wasn't a, an oral aversion. It was a true, you know, insert esophageal atresia that had been repaired or fistulas that had been repaired. I mean, like numerous medical backgrounds and they had autism on top. Um, I have seen the ABAs try to explain that this is a quote unquote 
feeding problem and they reward the children for eating with food out of a fish on tackle box. Is that anywhere in the realm of psychology? Because I feel really strongly against feeding children out of fish and tackle boxes, but like one had an so, thread box and she said it's not a fish and tackle box. So reach. So you're saying because it's broken into segments, like almost a, like a divided plate with many more dividers, no, that's how the fish and tackle box is being used? Yeah. No, it was like literally a fish and tackle box. Like they bought these things in masses and like we're mm-hmm. compartmentalizing different foods and the foods were not touching. They were all in isolation. And if the child ate a food, then they were given like basically candy and junk food, like Skittles mm-hmm. or M&Ms or gummy gums, uh, like gummy bears mm-hmm. as like, as a reward and like i i feel like the joy of eating is the reward for the most part or me singing songs but like where is that in the world well i do think you know it really depends so much on the individual child i i agree that we aspire to have every child eat for the for the joy of eating and just have that kind of intrinsic motivation for it um but, but I will say there are, are a lot of our kids that we end up seeing, um, particularly thinking about like in our intensive program, things like that, where uh, they will have tried the more kind of self-motivated strategies in the past and by competent therapists and or, or competent programs, things like that. And just still they'll, uh, you know, take small bites. Maybe I take, I'll take small tastes of food. But if we're talking about something like taking enough volume to get off of a G-tube, um, that just don't have that same internal drive. So I don't know about fish and tackle box specifically, but with a lot of our, (laughs) a lot of our kids, we do use specific rewards. Typically we're using non-food rewards, um, for, you know, take a bite and then you get, uh, you know, 10 seconds of time on an iPad and things like that. Um, because a lot of our kids have been in those situations to kind of be more self-directed for years, and, and don't step up to make that choice. Um, and so then, um, you know, it's, it's working with them on how do we meet them where they're at and gradually increase for, for some of our kids that just might maybe getting them used to, um, drinking their volume of formula so that doesn't have to go through the tube. And then they have, you know, other practice at other times, or it depends on the child and the family and things like that. But I I will say that we have a lot of kids, what we've been seeing more and more, and there's actually some new research coming out of Harvard on this, that the um, kids that have been diagnosed with ARFID, they're, they're coming into meals already feeling full or feeling fuller than other kids. And so the, you know, what we see over and over again is kids will be like, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And then they eat three bites and they're done. And so they're interested in eating. It's not about having this, um, you know, internal love or drive or anything like that, but the way that their body, uh, their, their stomach communicates with their brain, they feel full faster. And if they're relying on their internal cues, they, they don't increase in the volume enough to be able to do things like get off of the gastrostomy tube. So are those the ones that end up getting put on Aripad or periactin for GI motility or see, like to develop? Some of them. Some of them. And, um, and some kids still don't respond to that. Many. Huh. You know, so so it's it's something that definitely, and I am not a medical doctor, so I don't want anybody thinking they should take my advice on on periactin or anything like that. But you know, just 
our observations are that it is not a cure-all for a lot of these kids. Or let's say, um, let's say the child would need to uh, take 20 ounces worth of formula in order to eat their daily meads. Uh, maybe they currently will drink two ounces, and when they take periactin, they'll take eight ounces, but there still is 12 to go. Yep. I have seen that and, a lot as well. Yep. And that's where a lot of these strategies come in for kids who, you know, might have, um, th they might have some interest, but not be able to push themselves over the hump or those kids who, um, we get a lot of referrals for kids who have done more child directed therapy for a long time and they are able to touch, kiss, lick and get up to everything except that bite oh. or get to that. Um, maybe they get to a bite, but when we're talking about um, enough volume to make that um, significant difference, then helping kind of uh, move that move that process along. And, it, and if I could say one other thing about kind of when we use those rewards, things like that, a lot of times what will happen is I'll be working closely with a, um, a speech or OT that um, has been working in trying to work with a child in therapy, but they won't even um, sit at the table. They won't go anywhere near the food or they'll sit down at the table. They'll be there just fine, but they um, will not open their mouth will not follow any directions that are given or anything like that. A lot of times we've had a child might be referred to psychology to help with increasing participation and in following instructions generally. And then once they're opening and they're doing things on command, then they go back to their oral motor feeding therapist to work on skill development and, and feeding and all those kinds of things. Okay. So what cognitive age and I say cognitive and like developmental here because I, I know chronologically and adjusted, I mean, these babies can be all over the board. I mean, because Absolutely. I have a couple that have rare genetic conditions, and I mean, that are, you know, two, three years old, but cognitively eight to nine months in functionality. Mm -hmm. And they're not mm -hmm. the kiddos that would be appropriate for that kind of therapy. But what developmental age are you looking at to participate in that kind of therapy? I think it depends. You know, there's, um, I've consulted, so I've consulted with families as young as newborn and, um, but with, but with younger families, we're not, we're not dangling a rattle and saying, take a bite. <laughs> you know, we are working with the family on, um, coping with the stress of having a child with with feeding problems, um, with, uh, you know, that how we're structuring our meals, how we're looking at who's feeding them in terms of like, who's present, what is, what is our body language doing? What are ways that we can support them? Or, you know, there, there might, it might be adjusting to a child having gastrostomy tube placed, you're right? Helping or them find or their, kind of adjusting to those Yeah, you're delays. helping them find their footing in Holland. I mean, like you're setting them mm -hmm. for success. You, you got yes. it. Yep. Helping the, helping me that Holland tour guide. So, um, so, you know, it, the, what we do changes with age, but there's not a hard, Oh, only at this age range is used. I would say for the behavioral strategies, you, like the first, this, then that, and using the rewards and, and things like that, that's usually coming closer to a mm -hmm. year old. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I totally got you. I was just, I, when you yeah. did the dangling, the baby rattle, all I could see was old school Acme <laughs> cartoons with, um, was it Daffy and Porky and those like haunts with like the carrots uh -huh. on the, yeah. 
<laughs> that that would I, would I would love to see the I, you know when I first started referring out to a psychologist, my kid sister goes, she was like, but won't they analyze you for sending the referrals? I was like, no, I'm already screwed. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, speaking of that, can I get on a on a quick soapbox for a second about the kind of referral yeah. to psychology? Great. So, um, one of one of the big things that we see is people are referred to psychology and then don't come. Okay. And um, actually, my my doctoral dissertation was about a stigma and how that prevents people from seeking treatment. And what we've seen is we compared different types of stigma in terms of how I thought. People in general think about those that go to therapy, how I thought the people close to me might treat me different, or how I look at myself. And the biggest predictor of whether or not a parent went to um, a behaviorally-based treatment was how they looked at themselves. So if uh, somebody is approaching a referral and is like, listen, you might need to go see the psychologist, and it's like it's this like deadly diagnosis, they're going to look down on themselves more and be, be less likely to, to follow up. So um, you know, when, when people are making those referrals or want to work with somebody, emphasizing that we're building on skills, we're helping change behavior. It's not what you see on TV with interpreting dreams and blaming your mother and, and all of those kinds of things. Um, but just, uh, and making it clear, and this is evidence-based, if parents understand why you think that the referral would benefit them, they're much more likely to attend treatment as opposed to, I think we need to get the behaviorist on board. I'm going to place a referral or something like that. Okay. So I'm going to do a 30 second soapbox in addition to your okay, soapbox. Great. How about that? Okay, cool. All right. So I do this in every single live lecture. So folks, if you have heard me speak live, then you know how I feel about this. I am first and foremost, a domestic abuse survivor. I am alive because I took the bullets out of a gun one night when my ex-husband lost his marbles. Not officially lost his marbles, but I'm going to go there. Okay. I got counseling after I left with my life. I grabbed my car keys, my cell phone. I didn't even stop for shoes. I fled in the middle of the night because if he had woken up, I would not be here to do the thing that it is that I love doing, and that's helping others heal. And I saw a clinical psychologist, and the very first time that I went, I was so nervous. I went across the street. I had a slice of pizza and the big beer, and I still went handshaking because of my anxiety, which apparently I have a little bit of that too, and saw the clinical psychologist. And I said, I want to be validated that it's okay to be angry and afraid. And she said, yes. And it was it was as if all the weight of the world had been lifted off of my shoulders. So if you are treating tiny humans and have this as your current walk, get out, find joy in your journey, and find you a clinical psychologist because you will not be able to help the tiny humans that we are supposed to help heal if you are not taking care of yourself first. Amen. So that was a lifetime ago. Wow. A lifetime ago. 
But um, I met the Mr. Dawson. <laughs> Hell, we moved in together after two weeks. We eloped after four months. Life was good. <laughs> now you're Gamecocks <laughs> country. <laughs> now I'm officially in Gamecocks country, and who knew that was a thing? Wow. So there it is. Okay, so now that um, I'm a little weepy-eyed, but um, case are all, what shall we do? So on that note, Mr. Robert, we are officially over on time. Um, before we leave, if anyone has questions about how they can reach you for further assistance, What's your best contact, sir? Absolutely. Just reach out to me by email. That's um, robert.dempster at nationwidechildrens.org. Beautiful. Thank you. And if you'll hold on two seconds, I'm going to switch this over to questions. Great. Okay. I just have to give a shout out and a thank you and a call to action. I'm really good at doing call to actions. There's a lot of soapboxes out there in the world, but... I just have to say that there aren't many people more passionate about pediatric feeding disorders and evidence-based treatment than all of y'all, you amazing First Bite listeners. So if you're interested in uniting forces with nerdy, passionate, like-minded individuals to help improve the system of care for pediatric feeding disorders, then consider joining Feeding Matters Community Ambassador Program, and we can help spread awareness and resources about pediatric feeding disorders. Y'all, this is me acting in that role right now, me sharing all of their resources, me doing all of these PSAs. That's me volunteering the time and the weird gobbledygook mouth that I was blessed and gifted with. That's volunteerism. For some people, being a community ambassador is taking their published pamphlets and they will send you that in a lovely little box and it shows up on your front doorstep or your back door. That way dog and chewy don't eat it. And you can go to the pediatrician's office and educate pediatricians about pediatric feeding disorders. It could be simply doing an in-service to your staff. There's so many different opportunities that you can share your talented selves and your skills and your time by acting as a community ambassador. Please, from the bottom of my heart, I am asking for you to join us in this crazy walk of life and be a community ambassador. It's rewarding, it's joyful, and it's fun. Um, So there it is. Tiny soapbox, call to action. Let's change the world. I'm pretty sure Dr. K. Toomey said we could do this on a grassroots effort in an episode or two a while back. So join Feeding Matters, be a community ambassador. And to learn more, visit bit.ly backslash FM community ambassadors. And seriously, thank you. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode. As well as the